Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanza on this live broadcast from Washington. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan. This Wednesday, January 23rd, 2024. Authorities in South Sudan's central equatorial state accused the National Salvation Front rebels of attacking civilians in Kajukeji County. Let the security organ get on top of the situation. Let them tell us exactly who is causing the disturbances on the ground. For the community members, wherever they are, home is home. There is nothing better than your own home. And Sudan divorces the Intergovernmental Authority on Development for inviting the leader of the Rapid Support Forces for Heads of State Summit. I think it's very understandable. By inviting Dagaro, also known as Ameti, Igad leaders are effectively elevating his political position and in the process, therefore, shaping the dynamics of the conflict. In we'll Sudan. have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. A representative of Clintwood General Traders say their vehicle was ambushed over the weekend by suspected rebels of the National Salvation Front in Kajukeji County. Alex Alingo says two people were killed and two others wounded during the attack. Viola Elias has more for VOA from the Ugandan capital, Kampala. Alex Alingo, who survived the Saturday attack in Kangapowand village of Kajukeji County, says he was on an assignment for Clickwood General Traders to get locks to sell. He says a group of gunmen shot at their vehicles, but he managed to escape. I was in the front seat in the car. Then I jumped out, tried to run. And then they just searching me. When I, like, I reached uh, 300 meters, then they shoot me with the RPG. That time I, I fell down. That's how I survived. I'm just feeling pain. I ran almost for like two, two kilometers, but I, I have taken some medicines. I feel some recovery. Alingo says the vehicle he was traveling in had 15 passengers, including three security personnel. There were two people who were killed. One one was burned burn inside the car. Uh, I think they banded him with the petrol. <coughs> then one is a soldier who was killed. Then a woman who is who used to cook for us the food. Uh, that woman is in the hospital up to now. One lady also was, was injured, minor injury in, in the back. And then she ran to, to the side of Uganda up to now. I, I don't have contact with her. The motive of the attackers remains unclear, but Alingo says he thinks they were targeting wood traders. We are just from the work immediately. They start by shooting and there is no end time we to identify someone. I saw only like uh, six people. I, then I start running away. At that time I don't know even who are those. And after now I don't know them. Kajukeji County Commissioner Manuel Dumo issued a statement on Monday accusing rebels of the National Salvation Front of attacking the passengers' vehicle. However, members of the National Salvation or NAS distanced themselves from the attack. NAS military spokesperson Emmanuel Yongule says his forces are not all over Kajukeji County. NAS had not really uh, involved himself in that incident. For us, uh, as a national salvation, we are not 
really involving ourselves into other issues of the community of that kind. But uh, for us, as a national salvation, our issue is with the government, not with the people who are doing their own businesses. The county commissioner urged people in the area to remain calm, adding authorities have launched an investigation. He says the county government has beefed up security in the area to curb further road ambushes. The security is hunting for these criminals. You know, these are forget of individual are not uh, part of the team and they are the one causing all these problems. The number is not more. This one is around six of them who caused that incident on the 18th. We are going to deploy the forces to that area. Tisa Sabuni, an elder from the Lituba community of Kajukeji County, says the attack shocked him. He says county security officials should catch those causing insecurity in the area. Let the security organs get on top of the situation. Let them tell us exactly who is causing the disturbances on the ground. For the community members, wherever they are, home is home. There is nothing better than your own home. By deserting your area, by leaving your area, unsettled attracts unwanted people. He says individuals holding unauthorized weapons threaten the stability of the community in the area. As we reported earlier last time, Sudan has informed the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, that it is suspending its membership in the East African Regional Bloc. Sudan froze relations with IGAD after the paramilitary leader Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Hemiti, was invited to a summit in Uganda that discussed the country's conflict. VOA's senior analyst Mohammed Al-Ashanawi discussed this decision with Joseph Sigley, Director of Research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. I think it's very understandable. By inviting Dalgado, also known as Hemeti, IGAD leaders are effectively elevating his political position and in the process, therefore, shaping the dynamics of the conflict in Sudan. So I think it is a reasonable position on the part of sovereign council, who is ostensibly the representative, the sovereign representative in Sudan, to see this as interference. And in fact, we are seeing that Hameti has been further aided in his efforts through uh, support of the UAE. So when you take the combination of factors, I think the Sudanese authorities are really pushing back against this external influence. The summit IGAD reiterated its call for an immediate and unconditional ceasefire in the unjust war affecting the people of Sudan. Also expressed continued readiness to offer its good offices to facilitate an all-inclusive peace process and again called for a face-to-face meeting between the two sides. Final communique from the assembly gave the generals two weeks to meet. What was wrong in Igad's call that caused the Sudanese foreign ministry to also accuse the summit communique of violating Sudan's sovereignty? Well, the communique in itself is non-controversial. Igad has been trying to get the sides to talk for some time. They are an important actor that should be involved, and they have been involved for months in trying to facilitate facilitate those discussions. That part isn't controversial. What has changed is that 
that they actually invited Hemeti to the summit meeting. He was part of their group photo at the summit. And so they are very clearly, symbolically treating him as a head of state. And this posture, this appearance is giving Hemeti more credibility, more legitimacy as a genuine head of state that again, changes his posture as really as a militia leader in the Sudan conflict. The rapid support force appears to have been gaining new ground in recent months with little resistance from the Sudanese army. The parliamentary chief, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, toured several African capitals as a part of a strategy analysts say is a bid for international legitimacy and is likely linked to the United Arab Emirates. What's your take on that? Hamati clearly is now playing a political game and trying to take on the posture of a head of state. He has met with leaders from South Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, and Djibouti since the end of December. And they have all rolled out the red carpet for him and treated him as a head of state. And so this is part of his diplomatic strategy to present himself as an alternative to the current sovereignty council. It's important too, because it sends the opposite message that negotiators and, and more importantly, Sudanese civilians have been trying to convey that neither of the military leaders should be considered as potential heads of state for Sudan as a result of the conflict. This has been really a political rivalry between the two sides. This is not a civil conflict on the part representing uh, Sudanese civilians. They are very resentful of both sides, and especially Hemetians who have been accused of ethnic cleansing in this conflict. And so the meetings are changing the political dynamics around this conflict. And we should add that UN panel of experts report has confirmed, you know, long rumored indications that the UAE has been financially and militarily supporting the RSF with operations out of out of Chad, maybe linked up with with Russian support for the RSF from Central African Republic and Eastern Libya. So this is part of a broader regional strategy that we're having to keep an eye on of UAE really trying to become a kingmaker in Northeast Africa. And, you know, the paradoxical situation of a small Gulf country of 9 million trying to really be the power behind the throne of a country of 50 million people in Northeast Africa. That's Joseph Sigley, director of research at the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He was speaking with VOA's senior analyst Mohammed Al-Ashanawi. From Sudan, we move to Kenya, where with the growing concern over greenhouse gas emissions that are blamed for climate change, a Kenyan-Dutch company is introducing electric bikes in sub-Saharan Africa for deliveries in urban areas to help reduce emissions. The transportation sector plays a crucial role in reducing greenhouse gas emission and mitigating the effects of global warming. Juma Majanga reports from Nairobi. Patrick Ambasu is making a delivery in Nairobi's Hallingham neighborhood. Ambasu recently switched from a motorcycle to an electric bike. The father of eight says the bike has not only improved his working conditions, 
but also increased his earnings. He says electric bikes have eased deliveries and transportation, adding that it has significantly cut down costs that riders would otherwise incur in buying fuel for motorcycles. The bike, Ambasu says, has good speed and it can go anywhere even places a motorcycle can't access. Motorcycle deliveries, called border borders, are common in Kenya. Last year, a Kenyan-Dutch company, EB Africa, began selling electric bikes and electric cargo bikes in Kenya, Uganda and Rwanda for deliveries and commuting. In Kenya, the bikes cost between $580 and $740. EB says more than 800 delivery riders in Nairobi have switched so far. CEO Sten van der Ham says the aim is to accelerate the adoption of clean transport in sub-Saharan Africa to raise incomes and reduce environmental damage through emissions. What we see is that the earning potential of the people who do last mile deliveries, especially on bodas, is quite low. It's quite expensive to operate a boda when you think about fuel, maintenance. An electric bicycle is two to three times more affordable. So resource or resolve the affordability um, of uh, uh, the, the, the challenges around last mile deliveries. But also, of course, we contribute to cleaner cities, more livable cities, uh, because there are no carbon emissions uh, when you think about electric bicycles. The e-bikes, designed and assembled in Kenya, are battery-powered with pedal-assist motors with speeds of up to 32 kilometers per hour. Tessie Mogeni is a mechanical engineer at EB Africa. We recommend for riders to bring their bikes for service after 800 kilometer ride. So that's where we can see if the brakes uh, need adjustment, if the gears shift properly, and if uh, the motor runs according to the way it's supposed to. As African cities continue to develop, EB's Van der Ham says creating bike lanes on roads and other infrastructure for non-motorized transport will be key to its uptake, resulting in many benefits. We want uh, to have one million bicycles on the road and through having so many bicycles, the impact on carbon emissions is huge. It will be six and a half million kilograms of carbon we are going to avoid. Um, but on top of that, there's also economical benefits. Um, because we're going to create more than 200,000 jobs as a consequence of having so many bikes on the road. Experts say that a global move to electric mobility is essential to minimize climate change. And while e-bike transporters in Africa like Ambasu can count the benefits, infrastructural challenges still remain. Juma, Majanga, VOA News, Nairobi. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. Coming up, a Ugandan musician and a politician is back in the news. Find out why after the break. You're listening to South Sudan in Focus on The Voice of America. A documentary about a Ugandan singer-turned-politician, Robert Chagulanyi, popularly known as Bobby Wine, has been nominated at the 2024 Oscars. Titled The People's President, the film has been selected alongside the internal memory, Four Daughters, 
to kill a tiger and 20 days in Maripol. Under the best documentary feature, viewers Douglas Mpugwa reached out to Chagurani for his initial reaction to the nomination. Yeah, we are very humbled uh, to see our Ugandan story making it uh, to such a huge global platform. For us, it has always been our effort to uh, highlight our plight to the international stage. It would help us uh, to convince those that fund the regime in Uganda to reconsider or at least to put stringent conditions, including respect for human rights and respect for democracy. There's no other way that we would raise our voice than letting, bringing our voice to the Oscars, one of the most prestigious platforms in the world. So we hope this will have an impact and create more awareness of our struggle in Uganda. Uh, to those who are not familiar with the your documentary, The People's President, what motivated you to do this documentary and what does it tell the world? Well, uh, the director heard about my story and I th- he thought it was interesting. So when he requested that he filmed myself, my wife and my comrades up close, I said yes to it. For us, it was an opportunity to invite the world into our struggle for freedom in Uganda. How what do you hope to achieve from this? What do you think, what are your expectations from this documentary? We hope to elevate our voice further and we hope to ask the world to join our hope and our desperate cry for freedom, for human rights and for democracy in Uganda. We know that our plight is decided in big capitals like uh, Washington and Europe. We hope to invite them to the real light, uncensored, unedited of the people of Uganda, and hopefully they can help us reverse it for the better of the future generations. I would like to add that in this film, uh, myself and my wife, we are not the real heroes. The real heroes are the thousands of the people of Uganda that have paid the ultimate price in the struggle for freedom and democracy. Uh, The real heroes are those missing comrades, the political prisoners, and there are millions of the people of Uganda that turned out and always turn out to support us and encourage us and remind us never to give up. I salute them and I hope we are representing them perfectly on the global platform. That's Ugandan singer turned politician Robert Chagurani, popularly known as Bobby Wine. He was speaking to my colleague Douglas Mpugwa from Kampala. Douglas also reached out to Uganda's foreign minister, Okele Oriem, for his reaction to the nomination. I don't have much to say, but my, my, my only comment is this, that mm. Western countries, Western countries are so gullible, are so gullible to everything and anything that uh, anybody that talks uh, negatively against uh, the, government, uh, the government of the day institutions. And uh, the, the government, Western countries spend more time trying to support uh, people who are against elected or, or the just or, uh, legal institutions of the day. And uh, whatever that those groups tell the Western government, even the worst of lies, uh, even uh, the most misleading of information, uh, the Western countries and their viewers are so gullible to these uh, uh, stories that, uh, you know, their, their, their legs go waxy and wobbly uh, to the such, such stories. So I, I wish them all the very best. But uh, for, for us in Uganda, the 
Pakistan speaks for, for, it, for itself, and uh, Uganda, and, and in spite all that they throw at Uganda, which are misleading, uh, Uganda has managed to, to prove, prove, prove them wrong. So uh, I, I've not watched that movie the, that has been nominated for, uh, but uh, it will not have any impact on uh, uh, on this government. Uh, uh, if anybody uh, uh, thought it would have an impact on this government, they're misplaced. And uh, he says uh, he's now managed to reach an international audience and to what ah, he calls ah, expose, ah. expose what is the undemocratic uh, situation in the country. How will the government counter that? By action. By action. We we have proven over and over again. Uh, just the, la the last few, over the last one week, we've had the most successful back-to-back -back, uh, summits that could be held in, in any, any part of Africa. Uh, it was f uh, fully attended beyond our wildest imagination by delegations coming from all over the world. The, yet, uh, uh, less than a month ago, there were stories, uh, there were allegations uh, of uh, and travel advices being uh, issued by Western governments that uh, tourists and investors should not come to Uganda and, uh, because there's violence in Uganda, there's terrorism in Uganda, and they'll be injured in Uganda. Yet, that has been disproved beyond doubt uh, that it was all lies, fabricated, and then misleading because the attendance of the, of the international community at this summit was beyond our imagination. That's Okelo Oriem, Uganda's Minister for Foreign Affairs. He spoke with my colleague Douglas Mpugwa from the Ugandan capital Kampala this past hour. At least, 20, at least 250 million children around the world are out of school and 760 million adults are still illiterate. This is according to UNESCO, which says the absence of children in schools is a violation of their rights to education. And as the world marks International Day of Education today, inequality in education is a problem for Africa. Maureen Ojambo reports from Nairobi. This year, the United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, is dedicating the International Day of Education to the crucial role education and teachers play in countering hate speech. UNESCO Director General Audrey Auzole says, and I quote, The accelerated spread of hate speech is a threat to all communities. Our best defense is education, which must be at the heart of any peace efforts. It is our collective duty, she says, to empower learners of all ages to deconstruct hate speech and lay foundations for inclusive, democratic, and human rights respecting societies. To succeed, she concludes, we need to better train and support teachers who are on the front lines in overcoming this phenomenon. The UN says without inclusivity, equitable and quality education, gender equality cannot be achieved, nor will the education sector break the cycle of poverty affecting millions. Experts say access to education is not evenly distributed in Africa, and this is leading to inequalities. Education expert Amos Kaburu says those suffering from limited access to education are coming from poor households, marginalized areas, and overage children. The groups of population that are suffering from um, limited access include children living with one or multiple forms of disability. And indeed, if you come to think of the groups that are not benefiting from the education pie, they are the same groups that rely on education for upward social mobility. So the irony is that education doesn't seem to work for them. 
The Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD Executive Secretary Ukene Gebeyehu, is calling on IGAD member states to invest in education for all and foster sustainable learning for peace. Kaburu says teachers have always played a critical role in ensuring peace. However, conflict in most countries in the Horn of Africa hinders the education of children. In most cases, when these conflicts emerge, obviously our education services serious um, setback because learning is significantly uh, impacted and it, it just can continue. So, yes, Africa has still has um, serious challenges around access that the education opportunities are not evenly distributed. He says the world is grappling with a surge in violent conflicts accompanied by a rise in discrimination, racism, xenophobia and hate speech. These factors cut across geographical areas, gender, race, religion, politics, offline and online. According to Save the Children Kenya in Madagascar, working at the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya, Conflict means less investment in education. If you look at the models that have been adopted uh, since independence, whether in Anglophone or Francophone Africa, education doesn't seem to have changed much. The drivers of education are still around uh, enrollment and teachers. The issue of language is still big across the continent, uh, considering that the type of education being provided is uh, already available in non-indigenous languages. Under the theme Learning for Lasting Peace, stakeholders including ministers, leaders and educators from across the globe are meeting in New York City to discuss the central role of education in achieving sustainable global peace. For VOA Africa, I am Moreno Giambo in San Francisco. New Hampshire voters gave decisive wins to candidates Tuesday in one of the first votes for the 2024 presidential election. VOS Carolyn Presidi is in Manchester, New Hampshire, to bring us the winners and losers and what it means looking ahead for the next contest in South Carolina. Voters in New Hampshire Tuesday propelled former President Donald Trump closer to the Republican nomination. Coming off a first-place finish in the Iowa caucuses, he now has a New Hampshire win. In his victory speech, he sounded as if he had moved on to November. We have beaten Biden. I think we called it right. Immigration's a big deal, a big deal. His voters never wavered. Chris Compass has voted for Donald Trump in every election. I blame my life now for that man. from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley narrowed the gap with Trump thanks to the state's independent voters, like Jessica Minasian. Like most of us, we're just looking for another option, someone to come in and, like I said, because we've been divided and we want to bring everybody together and just be Americans. I asked Donald Trump Jr. about those voters as he arrived to greet volunteers. We've talked to independents in line, and they've said that they're going for Haley. What do you say to them? <laughs> they're not independents. They're Democrats. <laughs> the Democrats had their own worries. Write-in Biden signs seemed to be growing in the tiny town of Plymouth. Because of a National Democratic Party calendar change, the president's name was not on the ballot, but he still won handily. We'll see you on the trail. From here, all eyes move south for the next state primary. 
Chris Gaudieri is a political science professor at St. Anselm College. For Trump, South Carolina represents an opportunity to show that he can uh, defeat one of his opponents, Nikki Haley, on her own home turf. Not if the former South Carolina governor gets her way. Haley's next campaign event starts in South Carolina in less than 24 hours. Carolyn Prasuti, VOA News, Nashua, New Hampshire. That's all we prepared for you this Wednesday, January 23rd, 2024. We now leave you with some actually traditional song. Listening to some actually traditional song from Eastern Equatorial State. They actually are found in Eastern Equatorial State. I'm your host, John Tanza, on this live broadcast from Studio 14 here in Washington. On behalf of our producer, Kwame Ofori, and engineer Bill Bass, we wish you a lovely evening. Remember to join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. Keep on.